besides having to talk to me, how's your day going so far? Awesome. Well, my day just got started. It's 8 a.m. for me. Oh, yeah. It's awesome. oh. So, I'm are, are you both in on Los the West Angeles? Ah, uh, there you go. Well, I'll first throw it to, let's see, because everyone's saying cold and windy. We'll throw it to windy first because, oh. you know, you, you're doing it that way. How much of you is there in the character? And I ask that as somebody who's familiar with a lot of your work, both of you, we're going to talk about other projects, but first, Cold and Windy. How yeah. much of Windy is there in you? There actually is more than I thought because I first had the option to audition for Cold and Windy and I auditioned for Cold at first, but then ended up like oh. killing Windy. Um, they were like, no, we want to see you do Windy. And Windy does not give us like she does not care she's going after what she wants she's getting out she wants and she's going about it her way she's not letting anyone and I do that maybe not in the streets but I apply that <laughs> you know to other things so I definitely um relate to her with that and she's very like expressive and just like loud so I definitely identified her identified with her way more than I thought I did initially so yeah sure. yeah well same question to you Shakia um like and also did you uh audition for the other role as well or did you know outright this is what I'm going for uh no I I only auditioned for cold and when I read her breakdown I knew I knew she was the character I wanted to play as soon as I read her because um I feel like in a lot of ways I'm similar to Malika because I think she's just very ambitious and I think she loves love she wants love she wants intimacy she wants a family she wants a lot of things that most people want, you know, but she's just trying to go about it and get it in a different way. Um, so I think I think I, I embody a lot of the the softer side of Malika, the side that she wants to express more, but because of her situation or her experiences, the, the person she's in a relationship with, even sometimes around Wendy, she has to put on this, this tougher facade so that people don't come at her. And I think all of us do that to a degree. We find ways to shield and protect ourselves. Um, so yeah, I relate with her in that way. And the fact that she's just an artist. Um, I feel like I was born to be an artist. I love music. I love, I love, I love all the things. So um, I feel like Malika is similar in that way. Like she's just very passionate about it and she's willing to do whatever it takes to make it. And, and as a follow-up question, as an artist, we're getting to see you now identified by the single name. Most people can't do the single name thing. Like, I can't just be Darren. You wouldn't know who Darren is. But Shakia, did you know all along that you wanted to be a single name person? Or is that just something that happened organically? Um, I kind of always knew it because just growing up, my first name was always so distinct. It was always just such a thing. Like people have spelled my name wrong since I was born. People say it wrong since I was born. And I've just been screaming Shakia at people. And sometimes even one of the reasons why I dropped my last name is because it just seemed like a mouthful for people. And it just became like, they're already trying to figure out Shakia. And then they got to add this last name that they can <laughs> barely remember. So I'm just like, let's just simplify it. My first name looks unique enough to, I think, like, no, I searched Google, like, nobody else really has it. So I'm like, I think I can kind of claim this thing. Well, <laughs> Except for Shakira, but she's got the she's got the R, and I was like, people know that's her. People know that's not me, so. Having the last name Paltrowitz, I think I know what you mean there. But, uh, <laughs> oh, 
but not to throw it at you. Uh, first of all, what percentage of people say your first name correctly the first time? You know what? The percentage has increased now that I'm older, which is it's so crazy. Like, so I, I really would say it's at least a good 85 to 90 percent. And I also oh. met more Nigel. So I, I guess my name became like wow. more, especially with the Internet, like TikTok. If I have a TikTok that goes viral. Oh, my, I've met so many Nigel spelled the exact same way. And I always tell my mom, like, there's more, like, there's more Nigel's <laughs> out there. So, yeah, now that I'm older, surprisingly, it is like an 85 to 90 percent. But like 13 and before, oh, it was like 10 percent. At season two, I think we'll be at 100%. But yes. until then, uh, yeah, fantastic show where you both obviously put in so much work into the characters. Now, Nadja, I know that you have improv in your background. Yeah. How much prep is needed for a role like that? And I ask that because a lot of improv people you meet just go, tell me what you need. I'll get it done because they can improvise. But yeah. then other improv people go, I want to know every detail, of this character and the backstory. So which yeah. one do you I definitely like to know every detail because I feel like it helps improv as well, especially with portraying like a lead with so much depth, so much things going on. And I have to be aware of like the arc and the things I want to make sure that flow and keep going throughout the season. Mm -hmm. So I like to know every little detail because that helps me with all these nuances and all these things that I can improv. Like I want to know as much as I can. Like I'm going to do a deep yeah. dig. I'm going to ask the director questions. What is he going for? What does he see? So I definitely like to, um, yeah, know as much as possible because it helps with like how I can improv. Yeah. Same question for you, Shia. Now, in terms of your roles, I don't know if you have an improv background, obviously you're quick witted <laughs> and all that, but for you, do you like to know every little detail and to, to pile on to my question here, sometimes mm -hmm. people come to the set knowing the script might change, the director might change their mind a little bit. So I'm not mm -hmm. gonna memorize everything until 10 minutes before they say action. Oh goodness, no. Um, I am I am a, uh, maybe I'm an over-preparer, uh, perfectionist at a fault. So um, I, I feel like I need to know everything. I'm watching, every YouTube video I can find from a person from Chicago. I'm looking at pictures of the streets of Chicago. I'm listening to the music from Chicago. I'm just trying to completely um, embody the, the energy of the music that comes, you know, drill music. Um, and I think a lot of times like with playing, playing characters, it's, it's difficult because you're trying to portray someone else, but a lot of you is, put in that character so even though like Malika is trying to do drill rap and she's trying to be hard and she's trying to be this she's also trying to show different sides of herself and show a a, a cold side but then a soft side <clears throat> um so yeah got it Shkia, you great credits you've got the first time I I recognized you was when you played Kenya on Atlanta and both of you we're on Atlanta. Is yeah. that something that's ever been discussed? You just said Chicago. So that made me think, well, yes, the show's in Chicago, but we're talking about cities here. Did you ever talk about your Chicago, uh, your uh, rather, your Atlanta experiences? Yeah. We yeah, we did. Yeah, like, we, we I'm did. too. Yeah. There you go. Yeah, it just uh, kind of randomly came up. It just kind of, I don't even know how it came up. Oh, I think I saw you. I think I was like, I think I just saw you on Atlanta or something yes. like that. <laughs> that's so cool. Well, back to Cold and Windy, though. 
was all of it actually filmed in Chicago? I really have to ask that dumb question because we now know that Netflix has its Albuquerque studio that looks like Las Vegas. Mm. And you find out that one of the, like Atlanta, when they say it's New York City, it's actually Georgia. So you never know where anything's filmed <laughs> these days. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so true. Yeah. It's so definitely, yeah, it's definitely filmed in Atlanta. <laughs> right yeah, filmed yeah. In Atlanta. All of it. So I think so, they used a lot of exteriors from Chicago, maybe some yeah. of the B roll footage and um a lot of the exteriors. Uh-huh. But yeah, we were we were in Atlanta though. Mm-hmm. So let me throw this one to Nigel here. When did you realize that you could make a living as an actor? an actress, whatever you, whatever the correct term is these days, mm-hmm. being based in Atlanta or, you know, not having to be a New York, LA person. I ask it because it seems like very few things these days are filmed in New York or LA. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, it's definitely still a lot filmed in those places, but in Atlanta, it definitely wasn't really much filmed here. So when I first mm-hmm. wanted to pursue acting seriously in about 2016, I was like, okay, I don't know how I'm going to do it, but I have to move to LA. Like I have to move to LA. Um, and then I think just seeing things being filmed and seeing the news and meeting people who were working and acting and then some actors from L.A. were moving to Atlanta. I was like, OK, I, maybe like 2018, 2019, I was like, oh, I don't have to move. Like, <laughs> I can be bi-coastal if anything. Like, I, I don't have yeah. to, like, leave. Um, if I don't want to, I can actually make a living out here. So I, I think about 2018, 2019 is when I was like, oh, wow, like, it's booming out here, which is dope. Like, I love it. Direct flights to everywhere thanks to Delta. So yeah, you mentioned you're on Pacific time. Are you out there for work or you're a full-time Californian these days? Well, I'm a full-time Californian now. Um, yeah, I moved here two years ago. So um, I'm originally from Florida, lived in Atlanta for a year during the pandemic, and then just decided to make the move to LA. Hmm. Good for you on that end. Well, the last two questions I'm going to have for you, the same questions. And the first question will go to Shakia. Obviously, Cold and Windy is the best show on WeTV. Obviously, everyone knows it's the fact. But what's the second best show? Can you recommend a show? Second best on WeTV. If not, if you have the answer already, I'll I'll take it. Um, I'm I'm watching Growing Up Hip Hop, and I find it I find it intriguing. Like I don't. I'm not a huge, huge fan of reality TV, so I don't always watch reality, but there are certain reality shows that I just love to watch because it gives me insight on the people and their lifestyles, especially as a as a as someone playing a female rapper. Um, I just love seeing like kids who are descendants of rappers and what their lives are like. And um, yeah. it gives you just a little insight on how the music industry or just entertainment in, impacts like people who grew up in it you know as a well yeah as opposed to kind of me coming coming into it at an older age yeah your first generation <laughs> uh, that's yeah. the way to put it uh not, yeah. not, same same question at you is that your favorite we tv show or do you have another recommendation i would say um i think i'm about to say it wrong but i think it's love after lockup yeah. Oh, yeah i think that one would be that that would be one of my favorites because it's just it's interesting like it's a niche like it's like yeah it's just like it kind of draws you in so i would say but definitely growing up hip-hop is good too because of what she said the insight on people that we see we kind of get to see maybe like a real side to them mm-hmm. right. last question we'll start with you first Nigel. what's the last concert that you went to for fun 
for fun. The last concert was it? Oh my gosh, it wasn't Beyonce. That was fun. But wow, I can't remember. I feel like there's so many concerts I wanted to go to, but I'm going to say Beyonce because I can't remember what came after hers. I'm it was so that sorry. memorable. I get it. <laughs> but yes, it was such an amazing experience. So that was definitely, um, that was definitely fun for sure. I enjoyed it. She's an amazing performer. I can't wait to see her again. Shakia, mm -hmm. same question at you. Uh, the yes, most I recent, it's honestly not recent, but the last concert I remember going to, like a full-on concert, was J. Cole. Like, I've been to, like, little performances, but, like, a concert, J. Cole, I don't remember which album it was, but he had the whole stage, like, set up, like, Dreamville. I think it was, like, Dreamville. Like, that was the theme. And it was just a cool vibe because, like, it was kind of outdoorsy, an outdoorsy feel. It was when I was in Florida, and we were all kind of sitting on the grass, like, with just blankets and kind of just enjoying like this visual show he put on. And I think that was when like artists were starting to do a lot more with like just like set design on stage. And I think he had like a house and he was coming in and out of the house. It was just the, the coolest thing. Um, but that's that's the most recent one I remember. I do remember. It was the Millennial concert. That was the last concert I went to. <laughs> yes, duh, with all the artists from like the Millennial Times, like 2000, they all came yeah. together. Yeah, the Omarion and B2K. Uh, yes, oh, yes. Nice. That was the last one I went to. That was a ball. Love Nothing you. but so Well, I hope that we eventually see a cold and windy tour in the future. I hope we see a second oh, season. And thank you both for your time. Continued success and looking forward to whatever's coming next. Thank you so thank much. Thank you. Same to you. Outrocast. You have a new record and it comes on the heel of another record. When was Loeb's finished, you know, with relation to the companion piece prior record? Um, it, it was it was finished pretty, pretty long after Huffy was um, a, a chunk of the songs on Loeb's were written alongside those Huffy songs. Mm -hmm. And uh, initially, our intention was only to make one record. But the further we got into sort of like sorting the songs and producing the album, the more we felt like this this one group of songs didn't really fit with the other group. So we kind of we kind of separated the two early. Unfortunately, we had we had plenty that were in the mode of Huffy. Um, so which is why Huffy came first. Huffy was sort of ready to go. Mm. And uh Loeb's, you know, there was there was just a group of kind of like poppier, more atmospheric, dancey kind of songs. And we were like, well, let's let's see let's see about like pursuing this vibe a little more and making mm -hmm. a more cohesive album. You usually our albums are just sort of like a snapshot of the past 2 years of our writing and we'll just choose, you know, the 10 best songs, but this time we we sort of felt like there was uh, identity enough in each of those two halves that it might be cool to make, you know, sort of thematically related records. So right. that's what we did. That's what you did. Mission accomplished. You <laughs> actually answered something that I was going to ask later, which is when We Are Scientists has 12 songs on an album, was it paired from 12 songs or was it, you know, whittled down from 25? Is it always there's more written than makes the record? Um, uh, sort of the, the, 
longer we've been going, mm-hmm. the more songs we tend to have per album. So like our first album, I mean, I guess we we technically had more than those 12 songs existing. Right. But but be, because we were um, you know, only a live band before we made that first record, we considered you know, the songs that we would play in our 45 minute set at whatever club we played to seven people, like those were the only songs we had, you know, any anytime a song got cut from the set list, it like no longer existed as a song. So we kind of, uh, yeah, when, when that first record came out, those were like the 12 songs we had. And then and we had to write a bunch of B-sides when we signed to Virgin because Virgin was like, well, we're putting out five singles and all of those need to have like four b-sides and we're just like oh shit well it uh, helps so, getting the publishing deal when you have to deliver x number of songs so it was homework but hopefully garnered in advance with all that that's true and i actually i actually i want to say i lied but i was just I, an idiot and i forgot i think uh the song textbook on our first record was actually written to be a B-side, but we finished it before the album got mastered. And we were like, no, 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 this song has to be on the record. So we cut something else and made that poor thing a B-side. Anyway, with, sorry. I'm with those in the early, weeds here. I'm already early, in the weeds. That's that's the good place to be sometimes. <laughs> with those early songs, you know, I had the pleasure of interviewing the Moldy Peaches like six months or so ago. And All they were right. got yes. their original demos and they oh, were shit. not too embarrassed by them. In your case, how do you feel about those early songs that got cut? Do you hope to never hear or have to play them ever again? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think especially with those songs that immediately preceded the 12 songs that made the record, I think our style was just pretty wildly different. That's also part of why they were shed. Um, like when we when we first started out, we were very kind of like West Coast indie rock. Like we were kind of like our favorite bands were Pavement and mm-hmm. Weezer, and we were, we were kind of really in that mode. And then being in New York for five years made us scummier and dancier and like you know rattier. So yeah, I, th- I think I think I would be embarrassed only because it would sound like us doing Weezer covers, you know, like it, I, I think it sounds much less like us now than even our first album, which were the very next songs we wrote just kind of still sound like what we sound like. Right. Um, so I think it's, I think it's embarrassing the way it's embarrassing to like show pictures of yourself before you got braces or with acne or whatever. I don't know. Like whatever. I, it's what, it's you. what we, it's what we were. There's no reason to be embarrassed by it, but you you look a little dorky. Uh, yeah, I don't want to hear the interviews that I did when I was 17 and 18 years old. Those were <laughs> abysmal. Now, but, now but, what's really funny is that I'd mainly be embarrassed because we were such bad producers at that point <laughs> that our dem- our demos are like just sonically unlistenable. They sound so unbelievably bad. It's wild. I can't believe what tin ears we had like 20 years ago we just did not know how to record 
Another thing that fascinates me about your band is that you're on that short list of New York bands who are really European bands. By that, yeah, I mean, right. like the bigger venues in Europe where you're like a festival headliner. And then here it's like, oh, do we want to play a small gig to a thousand people? <laughs> right. It, it's basically you guys, not a surf, the fun loving oh, yeah. criminals, the lemon twigs, that, that nice. whole thing. When did you kind of realize that Europe was the saving grace of the band? And, and I mean that as entirely a compliment. I mean, we we realized that uh, essentially immediately, like before even our first record came out, um, like our, our very first booking agent was in the UK. Our first radio play was um, the good demos for With Love and Squalor. Where mm -hmm. we, we did five songs with Ariel who produced with yeah. Love and Squalor. So now we, it'd we be sort of, hard to get Ariel on the phone. It's pretty, whereas, it is pretty hard to get Ariel on the phone. Whereas when you worked with Ariel, uh, the word is that EMI Virgin went, no, you can't use an unknown guy like that. And now everyone's done to work with Ariel. So yeah, you know, we, uh, we, we essentially sold, we made the record ourselves uh, with Ariel and essentially licensed or sold it to, to EMI right. and put it, put it in our contract that if we wanted to, they had to let us use Ariel on our second record. And I think they didn't think in a million years we would ever exercise that clause. Like, I think they would have been like, oh, you know, you sh we're going to, well, we're going to pay for Alan Mulder. You're going to pay for Alan Mulder. We are scientists. And we're like, nah, we like Ariel better than Alan Mulder. Uh, yeah, it was, it was a bone of contention. But they, they, they eventually, long after we stopped working with EMI, EMI started liking Ariel a lot. Unfortunately, we had to we had to fight the Ariel fight. Uh, but he's he's amazing. He's still my favorite producer in the world. Uh, but anyway, uh, so we made some demos with him, and those demos started getting played uh, by a DJ named Steve Lamock in the UK. Um, so yeah, we knew even before we had signed our first record deal that. Uh, well, I guess we didn't know that it would remain bigger <laughs> over there. Uh, but we definitely knew that like things were happening for us over, over in Europe earlier. Right. It, it's now a point in your career where if you're doing a 15 song set, theoretically all 15 of those songs could have had music videos and gotten radio play somewhere in the world. So therefore we are scientists are a true career band, festival <laughs> band. When did you start to feel that, that it wasn't about record to record, but it was about, Oh, we'll get them next time if this record doesn't work out because there's a summer tour. There's 50 shows to do. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that is interesting. I do. I do now feel like. With our set lists, you know, we always have. Enough songs to fill a set that people are like, oh, I love that song, you know, yeah. uh, and I think I I as a set list writer like air probably too far on that uh greatest hits crowd pleasing side i think chris if chris were writing all the set list there would be so many crazy deep cuts in that that i'd be like uh oh, people don't know that they're gonna be mad at us chris um but yeah i like i think i think we still do always uh think of every individual album as life or death like, mm -hmm. I think we never think if this album doesn't get them out, we're fine. But 
I think like years later, the individual albums start like the individual albums in our past kind of all blend for me now, where I'm just like, I don't know, we just have 200 songs and they all, I guess, I guess I remember that we put them out over a period of 20 years, but I don't know. They're just kind of all of all our songs. They're our body of work. Before I ask more about Three Pines, you lived in LA and you did stand up at a legendary club or two in your day. Did, Were yeah. you doing stand up because you really wanted to be a comic or is it a career transition and trying something new? That's a really good question, man. Um, at the time, my focus and my training and my background was strictly as an actor, but I loved comedy and I'd always felt like I had a, um, uh, you know, I, I had a faculty for comedy, but, um, but I don't know. I, I just, I saw myself having the creative freedom that stand-up comedy offers. And I was struggling, you know, to book jobs. I, I had been, well, let's just say this. I had started my career in the U.S. in Chicago, although I went to school in the Southern California, in the L.A. area. Mm-hmm. So after school, I went to Chicago uh, and then went back to L.A. and then went back to Chicago to do some plays and then returned to L.A. after I lost out on a role with the Steppenwolf Theater that was going to go to Broadway. Struggled for two years, didn't book anything. And then I just had this like light bulb go on that was like, dude, just write your own stuff and get up and do stand up. So I didn't really have like a long game plan in mind or a blueprint to kind of follow as far as how that was going to end up looking or unfolding. Um, But I just knew I wanted to have the creative freedom to get up there and just be like, screw all this, like trying to jump through these hoops and whatever, you know, just here I am, this is what I think about this and that, you know, and this is the way I'm seeing the world. And, you know, at least for a little period of time, it, it got the ball rolling for me in, in a new direction and kind of jump-started some things. Um, I mean, if nothing else, it got me a good agent at like a, I would say a top 10 agency um, at the time. And um, yeah, what happened actually uh, is a, a literary agent was dating a girl that was in a stand-up comedy workshop that I was doing. And this girl, she, I, I don't know. I, w- I won't say her name, but she, she's, she's somewhat of a well-known person now. Um, but uh, she asked me after this uh, presentation or this, you know, uh, showtime night that we did at the comedy store, she was like, can I give the tape to my boyfriend? He's an agent. I was like, sure. <laughs> so uh, I was, I think I was homeless at the time and I was crashing at a friend's place in Park La Brea, if you're familiar with LA. Um, and uh, do you live in LA, by the way? I did some time just around and figuring out, Hey, am I an LA person? But New York is is Uh, the best and and future. uh, (laughs) Awesome brother. I love New York. Um, so yeah, I was was staying with a friend in Park La Brea and, uh, I had a, actually I had a pager at the time. I didn't even have a cell phone and my pager went off and it was this for this unknown number. I'd never, you know, three, two, three number, but I called it and, uh, and it was this agent guy. and uh anyway yeah long story short he was uh he was cool man he really got behind me and uh um his sister was actually um lauren holly who had done dumb and dumber with jim and carrie so and and had been had been married sorry i should have led with that she was married to jim jim carrie and so he said he saw some jim carrie in me and some i think he said like bill pullman a little tom hanks and he got, and he was like, uh, you know, come in, you know, we'll sit down, we'll talk, we'll see what's up. 
And so after that, um, I sat down with the, the whole, you know, around a big conference room table with all these agents. And they were like, um, I, I don't know if I mentioned he was a literary agent. And yeah. so he, he brought me in and they, all the talent agents were like, so what do you want to do? You're a comic that wants to be an actor. And I was like, ah, actually, I'm an actor who started doing comedy and I'm kind of open to doing both. But really, I'm an actor. And they're like, oh, OK, OK. So they steered me towards television. And then um, and then after that, um, I, I was up for this WB uh, pilot that they were actually uh, it, I don't even know if I'm supposed to say all this stuff, but it, it is so long ago. It probably doesn't matter. Outro cast.